Henry Wadsworth Longfellow said, heavy as the weight of dreams pressing on us everywhere and we stand from day to day like the dwarfs of time gone by who as Northern legends say on their shoulders held the sky. Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 162, and I'm your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. My goal with every podcast is to find the best child and adolescent experts I can in the country, even the world, to help you understand your kids better and to help you be the parent you really want to be. Parenting is hard. I know I've raised four kids. Now I have six grandkids. Joining me today on the show is one of my favorite guests and the brilliant Erica Komazar. Erica is a clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, parent coach, and author. With 30 years of experience in private practice, she works to alleviate pain from individuals who suffer from depression, anxiety, eating, and other compulsive disorders by helping them live better lives and have richer, more satisfying relationships she assists them in achieving their personal and professional goals, and boy, does she do that. Erica has appeared on major media networks such as CBS, ABC, Fox, and NPR. She's a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New York Daily News, and Fox 5 New York. She's a contributing editor to the Institute for Family Studies. Erica lives in New York with her husband and entrepreneur, Dr. Jordan Casalo, and they have three teenage and young adult children. All right, let's get to my interview with Erica on parenting great kids. Well, Erica, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. I love your book, Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. Now, you know, this is a subject that's really close to my heart. It's anxiety and depression in kids. You open your book talking about the new age of anxiety. How is it the new age of anxiety? Well, let's say that Adolescence, first, thank you for having me on again. Um, adolescence has always been a traumatic time. You, you might say that just if everything goes right and ev everything goes well, um, under normal circumstances, adolescence is a kind of trauma, you know, between mm -hmm. hormonal shifts, puberty, shifting social scenes, identity formation, separation from parents. All these things make it a hotbed. Um, and make adolescence very fragile at that time and vulnerable to things like anxiety and depression. Um, but what's happening in society is that everything is amped up. Um, there's more stress in these kids' lives than ever before. And what I mean by that is more academic pressure, more social pressure, more expectations of them uh, to be adult-like very early mm -hmm. to take on adult-like responsibilities um, and very left-brain focused. So very focused on them doing well in school. So what I say, left brain over right brain. So the focus on cognitive development at a very early age versus social emotional development. Um, so, and mm -hmm. add that to all of the environmental things that are going on. The fact that social media is such a big part of their lives. Um, the fact that they have all of these uh, climate change threats, um, threats of the future and economic 
uh, and job security when they get out of college. And um, just the fact that they're thinking about getting into college when they're in sixth mm-hmm. grade, literally, it starts in yeah. sixth grade, mm-hmm. uh, their anxiety. I mean, these are things that are above and beyond what our adolescents can handle. And so we are actually putting more on their plate, but we actually have taken mm-hmm. away some of the things that originally allowed them to cope. Things like our our physical and emotional presence as parents, our, our being there as much as possible to help them to really process their emotions. We're there less because we as parents often have economic pressures, have to be away from the home, are more distracted ourselves, have social media uh, ourselves that distracts us. So uh, we're asking more and giving less. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And I know that's hard for parents to hear, but it's the truth. And I think that when kids are up against these pressures, you're absolutely right. The pressures on our kids are nothing like they were, you know, when you and I were kids at all. I didn't feel that kind of pressure. But when kids are going through that and parents are under their own pressure and not around much, it's almost like you you take the bottom out of the kid's life. And it's really, really hard. Because I've wondered, you know, you and I have seen a lot of increase in anxiety and depression. Do you feel that's because of the things you're talking about that our kids are just getting bombarded every which way with different kinds of pressures, social media, emotional, academic, physical? Do you think that's why it is? Well, I mean, you know, my first book, it was about how you create the foundation of emotional security so kids can be more resilient to adversity and stress in the future. So I think our kids are more emotionally fragile. So again, a perfect storm is having children that are more emotionally fragile um, because again, we we may not have been able to be there. And I say may not have been able to be there because many parents don't Mm -hmm. have the ability to be there physically uh, because of financial pressures. So, you know, it's never, Mm -hmm. I never judge it, but I I do try to help parents understand um, the nature of this because if you uh, do not create that solid foundation of emotional security in the very beginning, these kids are going into adolescence more emotionally fragile and more susceptible uh, to their defenses breaking down. And they are asked to create very intense defenses at a very young age. So we, we, we put our kids in daycare, we separate from them too soon. We expect a lot from them, as I said, in terms of cognitive development, the whole idea of social, emotional, play-based uh, learning until second grade is out the window. I mean, we have Head Start where they're trying to teach them to read and, and learn math. And so that kind of pressure on a nascent brain, on a developing brain is just too much pressure for them. And it if there mm-hmm. is that uh, solid emotional foundation of security, it's it's breaking it down. So these kids are actually going into adolescence more fragile. The the good news is the you know there, there's hope, and the hope is that as parents, you are the emotional home base for your child. And if for some reason you couldn't be the emotional home base, the secure base for your child um, when they were younger you have another opportunity because we know that adolescence, which is nine to 25, and that's why I wrote this book, between nine and 25, parents have this second opportunity to create that emotional home base. The more Mm -hmm. stress a kid has, 
the more they need to touch base with their emotional home base, even if it's just to get a hug, even if it's to grab a cookie and talk about their day for five minutes before they go back in their cave. Um, even if it's just to process uh, a few minutes, what may have happened in their social group, uh, even mm -hmm. if it's just listening, uh, because what they mm -hmm. need more than advice is just someone to listen to them and they need you to listen to them. So that all is the hopeful part that if your child was mm -hmm. more fragile, if they did break down, all's not lost. You, you know, you still have this opportunity to build that emotional foundation after the age of 25, when your kids go off. Yeah. I don't want to say all's lost, but it's much harder. Mm -hmm. I love that because I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that a lot of parents are taught a couple of things. A, when your child's a teenager, they want nothing to do with you. They're 13. They're going to turn into a monster, regroup with them when they're 18. And that is not true. Kids need their parents more during their teen years than ever. But I think parents are um, a little intimidated by the teen years and they shouldn't be. And um, the idea, like you said, of just connecting with them for 10 minutes, let them know you want their presence. Let them know you like them. You know, even something as simple mm -hmm. as that and just asking them a question and sit and listen. You don't have to teach, teach, teach all the time. Um, you know, what are you watching on TV? What are you watching on your cell phone? You know, and I think we get kind of panicky that we have just a little bit of time with our teens. So we tend to bombard them with instructions. There, there's a comment, I think it's from the Torah, it says, God gave you two ears and one mouth, which means you should listen more than you speak. Um, and I, I always abide by that, that, that as parents, our greatest gift to our children is our ability to listen and listen objectively, listen without judgment, um, and, and empathize with them. So, you know, really mm -hmm. to put ourselves in their shoes emotionally and see it from their perspective rather than seeing it from mm -hmm. our perspective and just to be there, right? So listening is a very important part of parenting an adolescent. And usually when you give them advice, you really should ask them if they want your advice, because most of the time, actually that might work for adults too. Most adults don't want your advice. <laughs> most adults just when they come to you, they yeah. want to be listened to. Exactly. Yeah. Why is it so hard for us as parents to listen to our kids, particularly our teenagers? Because it is hard. I found a lot of parents mm -hmm. just balk at that when I say, you know, you need to ask a question and stay quiet. And I always kid them about putting duct tape over their mouth because you're absolutely right. Two ears and just listen. Why do you think it's so hard for parents to listen to their kids. Anxiety. I think that a lot of parents worry mm -hmm. about being good parents. They worry about whether they've given enough to their children. They don't have faith that in the years leading up to adolescence, they've given their children a great deal of their beliefs, of their values, um, of how to get along in the world. And so they, they still feel they need to control the actions, mm -hmm. the thoughts, the feelings of their child. Um, you, you know, from the birth of a child, they're separating. From the moment they're born, they are separating. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what I mean by that is 
you know, they're attaching, which is a funny thing, because from the moment they're born, you hope that they're healthily attaching, but they're also separating. You're looking at your child and you're reflecting their emotions, not making them reflect your emotions. So in that way, you're, you are acknowledging your child as a separate human being who has feelings that are separate from your own. And in that way, we're recognizing their individuality. So it's very hard as we go on, as our children become more individual and both physically separate from us, but also, you know, become their own people. It's hard for parents, I think, to, to mm -hmm. let their children go. And it is hard to be empathic towards parents, as I always am. You know, it's hard to, to bring this child into the world, give so much, and then let go. Um, and just, right. and have faith. And that's a word that I use as a religious word, but also as a psychological word mm -hmm. to have faith that, um, that they'll be okay. And, and so I think that's why it's hard for parents. I think too, as you were talking, I thought of something that parents are afraid of what their kids are going to say. And that if they listen and their kids say, you know, for instance, I just talked with a mom earlier, you know, my child is suddenly wearing dark clothes. She won't talk to me. She's saying all these things. Oh my gosh, she's going off the deep end. What do I do? And I think there's fear that parents might have if they listen to their kids and they hear something they don't want. What do you say to parents like that? If, if your kids, if you're listening and your kid all of a sudden says something that terrifies you? Mm. Well, what's interesting is um, if you react strongly to what your children say and do, and if you react strongly to their um, expression of their individuality, um, they will become rebellious. And so right. things that may be passing fancies, like dressing in a goth style or piercing yeah. their nose or, um, you know, wearing black nail polish or listening to music that you don't approve of. So those things which may be passing fancies, if you can remain a little bit neutral and objective, will become part of that child's personality if you react. So the issue is as parents not becoming defensive. And as you say, we become defensive as human beings when we feel frightened, when we feel scared, you know, the old fight or flight. And so parents have to learn to control their anxiety or their fear. Um, and, and if they can contain those feelings, then I always say to parents, chickens come home to roost. You might find that your child gives up the goth and dresses a little bit like you yeah. or gives up the rock music and actually starts to like, you know, musical theater yeah. music and, you know, the, the music that you listen to in the kitchen while you were cooking. Um, but if you yeah. have a defensive yeah. reaction, you're most likely going to create a personality feature of that child as opposed to a passing fancy. You know, in meditation, they say yeah. you should watch the clouds and just watch them pass. But see your worries as clouds that pass by in the air. If parents can do that and just take in that children are experimenting, they're trying to try on new sets of clothes metaphorically mm -hmm. to see who they are. And if you let them try on different pairs of clothes, it's likely that in many ways they will come back to the same values, beliefs, tastes that you, that they grew up with. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree because I tell parents, you know, you're in there somewhere. So even though your 15 year old is doing crazy things, you're in there, you're teaching, you're your foundation. And that's important for parents to recognize. I think one of the things that parents today uh, panic about is if they see their 13 year old behaving a certain way and claiming they're a certain type of person, a boy saying, I'm a girl that parents are told that's not a phase, that's who they are. And I think that scares parents, and I personally believe that makes kids feel stuck. So you write a whole chapter on gender and sexual identity, and I know it's a hot topic, but talk about it from a therapist standpoint. Well, gender and sexuality are evolving. They're an ever evolving thing until Mm -hmm. about 25, meaning there's a lot of movement and fluctuation. And as I said, a lot of trying on different sets of clothing to figure out who you are. Um, And, and so if, if you allow them to experiment without reacting and becoming anxious and defensive, then some of these things, I mean, I think it's uh, in New York, I think the statistic is something like 30% of kids in New York identify as queer. So what queer means to a lot of those kids is that I don't want to identify yet. Uh, It, you know, or they'll say I'm bisexual, which is a way of saying, I don't want to identify, I I don't want to commit to anything yet. Um, Now, some of those kids going into adulthood will remain bisexual or will remain, you know, um, you know, that become transgender or remain transgender, but a lot of them are trying things on. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you can gain a little distance as a parent um, and kind of imagine yourself going to, when I was a little girl, my mother used to take me to Lowman's. It was a, it was a clothes store where there was a lot of clothes and you had to, you know, and the, and the dressing rooms were filled with women trying on clothes. And if you can just be like a mother in a dressing room, watching your child try on different sets of clothes without going, oh, I hate that one, or oh, I love that one. Just kind of saying, how do you feel about it? Some of these things are, as I said, there's movement in them, and they're on a spectrum. And and that means that some of these things, they won't stick. Um, And others that do stick, then we talk about acceptance. But I think, you know, the idea that parents become frightened that um, their children are, when they're 14 years old and they say, I'm bisexual or I'm queer or I'm transgender, the truth is you don't know who they are till 25. You're not going to know the outcome until this long period of development is over. So remaining calm, remaining non-defensive, remaining non-judgmental. Um, that's, that's the best advice I can give to parents when their kids are going mm-hmm. through this. Yeah. And there, again, it's the listening, but that's hard for parents to listen to. I remember our daughter in sixth grade decided that boys had it all over girls. And so for two years, she went to a barber and had her hair cut real short. And if she did something well, her reward was to go to the Army Navy store and buy something really ugly. But, you know, we let her ride through that. But but I never, back in that day, we never thought, oh, she could be transgender, whatever. And now she's like a fashionista as an adult. But I, fi- I think that it's a really point, important point to drive home to parents. And that is because it's, it's counterculture believing. But that if you have a teenager, their, their ideas are fluid. They 
don't understand what they want. And a lot of times I think they feel pressured to label themselves because that's what their friends are doing. But as a parent to say, hold on a minute, let's just hold on. Okay. So you want to be a boy and you're a girl. Okay. Let's just wait a while. And if you want to transition, you can do that when you're adult. I feel strongly against kids, little kids transitioning, because they're making life-changing decisions that they can't go back on, infertility, for instance. So I love that you talk about how parents should just sit back and listen and not panic, but don't, you know, don't sort of peg your kid and say, okay, you're transgender, you're going to be that way until you're 18. Just don't panic. Parents, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Erica. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more of my conversation. Welcome back to Parenting Great Kids. My guest is Erica Komazar, and I hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. You also talk about ADHD and learning issues and um, talk about that and how those things affect a person's development and mood. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. So ADHD and learning issues affect self-esteem. Uh, at a very early age, if a child is diagnosed with a learning issue and gets the proper resources, and, and, and that's to say there are the proper resources in some places around this country, they don't, there aren't the proper resources. Uh, there, there isn't the, the money for the proper resources. There isn't the wherewithal. So, you know, assuming that a child is diagnosed early and gets the help that they need, because the help is really accommodating to that learning issue. It's learning to learn in a new way. Um, but if they get the proper help, then it, it does not necessarily impact their self-esteem. It does not necessarily result in behavioral issues. It does not necessarily result in anxiety and depression. Um, it can become a very positive part of their identity. I had an adversity. I overcame it. I'm proud of myself and my family and teachers are proud of me too. The issue mm -hmm. is that most learning issues are not diagnosed at all. And they're certainly not diagnosed early enough. Um, and and so as a result, those kids sit in the classroom. I mean, all you have to do is empathically think, what is it like to be a kid who sits in a classroom and doesn't learn at the same fast pace as the other kids or who can't get? And I was actually one of those kids. I think I actually had an undiagnosed learning issue around numbers and math. Um, I sat in the classroom and I was intimidated. I felt poorly about myself. Uh, it affected how I interacted with other kids. Um, you know, it really, over time, erodes things like self-esteem and, um, and that can result in depression. It can result in anxiety. And with some kids, it can result in aggressive behavior, right? Because when you're very frustrated and you don't have the emotional wherewithal to deal with that frustration, you end up in that fight or flight state. You end up fighting to protect yourself and you end up becoming aggressive in the classroom or at home. Um, and then couple that with living in a family where maybe other kids don't have that learning issue. Then you end up being aggressive towards the siblings who don't have those problems and feeling jealous that they don't seem to struggle and you are struggling. So I could layer things on layering things, but you get the idea that, that um, learning issues that are undiagnosed 
can result in depression, anxiety, behavioral problems, and low self-esteem. You know, I agree. I think that so many times because everybody hears about ADHD and kids are having a hard time in school and the teacher says to your fourth grader, you know, you need to have him test. He has ADHD. Medication would really help. When really the problem isn't ADHD, it's dyslexia or it's depression or something else. And I I really encourage parents and physicians not to just jump to a quick diagnosis, but to really take your time and have the child tested because ADHD can be treated. And I, I think you're right. Once kids are adequately diagnosed and treated, they do so much better. Well, ADHD is an emotional regulation issue. ADHD is a response to stress in the brain. So it, I think people want to label it as a thing in and of itself, sort of like mm-hmm. as, as a disease in and of itself. And it's actually not a thing. It's a response to a thing. That's how I always put it. It's, it's actually... Mm-hmm a response to the anxiety or the stress that the brain is under. So so if you think of it as like a hypervigilance, like being in that fight or flight state chronically. Um, for, so a child with a learning issue, for instance, who's chronically feeling um, behind the eight ball, not able to do the work at school, falling behind, feeling badly about themselves, they get anxious. And, they, and so part of fight or flight is flight. And the flight is ADHD. It just comes with distractibility. So I always say, before you label a kid with ADHD, make sure they don't have a learning issue. Make sure that they're not responding to some major um, psychosocial stressor in the home. And here's one that most people don't think about and uh, is a real problem. And as a pediatrician, uh, I'm sure you know of this issue, which is eye convergence issues. People go to their eye doctor Mm. and say, oh, maybe my child can't see. And the eye doctor says, oh, your child has 20-20 vision, but that eye doctor has never tested whether the muscles of the eyes work. So there's something in New York called vision therapy for kids who have convergence issues. And I would say about a third of the kids that are labeled with ADHD in New York that I send to check for muscle convergence, eye muscle convergence, uh, which is corrected with some simple vision therapy, about a third of the kids have that convergence issue. And once it's corrected, they no longer have those issues. And my husband was one of those kids. So that's an interesting thing to check out too. Yeah. How would a parent watch out for that? Can a parent see that or just say to their pediatrician, okay, we've tested everything, but I want an eye convergence. Yes. It can be an ophthalmologist or an optometrist, um, an eye doctor. You have to go to an eye doctor. So a pediatrician can check for just uh, basic in the office, um, you know, whether a child has 20-20, but in terms of convergence issues, it's a special test and you have to ask for it. So if your child has been mm-hmm you know, uh, diagnosed with ADHD or behavioral issues. The first thing I do is deal with the organic issues. I make sure that they don't have eye issues that, you know, so I'll, I'll ask the the eye doctor to test for convergence issues. Um, I'll make sure that, you know, they don't have things like pandas, you know, I mean, there are some uh, biological things that can cause behavioral problems and, and can cause agitation in children. So I always think, you know, let's cover the, the, the biological piece first, the, the organic piece first. But after that, I go to the emotional piece. Mm-hmm. 
We don't have much time left, but I'm dying for you to talk about the emotional piece and emotional regulation, what it looks like when kids aren't emotionally regulated and what parents can do to help them be emotionally regulated. Well, emotional regulation is the ability for kids to not go too high or too low with their emotions. So you'd say depression and anxiety are disorders of emotional regulation. And, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that more kids are under stress and they have these emotional regulation issues. And the mood swings, which are normal for puberty, are exacerbated by these emotional regulation issues. Mm -hmm. So the way I, I describe it to parents is that parents are the emotional bioregulators for children outside of children still. So children can't, adolescents and children cannot yet fully regulate their own emotions. And that means they need parents to help them. Um, and what does that mean? It means processing experiences, relationships, feelings, thoughts. And that requires that you are one, present, two, interested, three, you know, can regulate your own emotions as a parent. As you said, a lot of parents have difficulty. They get anxious, they get fearful, they get agitated, they get angry at their children. Um, so it requires all of those things. But the ability to help to process, I say parents are like kidneys or pancreases or livers, you know, the idea that we are the filtration system. We are, we are, we are the regulation filtration system for children's emotions. And so the expectations that they should be able to do it on their own, that's a mistake. You're absolutely right. They Sometimes still need I us hear very parents, much. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to let my child figure out they're going to lead the way. And I said, you don't want to let them lead the way because they're going to fall off a cliff. You know, sort of living with this sense that your kids have more cognitive ability than they really do. And so where could a parent, say you have an eight-year-old who explodes a lot, happy, 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 but explodes periodically. What would a parent do in a situation like that? Well, in in the book, I give some tools for parents, but um, some some things for parents to think about. Um, in addition to, you know, asking open-ended questions, being a good listener, mentalizing with children, which means being able to um, think about their experience, use your imagination to think about their experience and what might be causing them to react the way they're reacting and putting it into words, reflecting their emotions. Um, and then in addition, very concrete tools that I talk to parents about, um, you know, tactile uh, stimulation, things like, so, you know, if your child is very volatile, um, having things that are soft around for them to touch, having things that are, that are familiar, having smells that are familiar, um, if they'll let you, lots of physical affection. Um, the same things we mm -hmm. use to soothe their distress when they're younger, we can use if they let us. Sometimes kids who are in a state, in a volatile or uh, aggressive state, won't let you touch them, but you can still use a lot of the nonverbals, the, 
the, the calm, soft tone of your voice, vocalizing instead of using words, um, music using, you know, so there's lots of things in the book uh, that are kind of tools for parents. But one thing I really like is a lot of the apps now have um, uh, meditations, things like Calm and Headspace. They have meditations for children that parents can do. Like Calm has now apps that parents, 10-minute apps that parents can do with children, mm -hmm. where you're actually doing mindfulness training with children. And, you know, I mm -hmm. think those can be very helpful and preventatively, not necessarily in the moment, but preventatively to keep those incidents from happening. So let's say as a parent, mm -hmm. you have a child that's very prone to volatility and, and emotional dysregulation, integrating into your routine, the idea of doing meditations every day as a family, 10 minutes of doing a calm app, um, that can prevent. So, you know, we say prevention is a pound of cure. So there's a lot of things, including that emotional regulation on a regular basis um, that that can help prevent some of the volatility. You know, it makes perfect sense because, you know, at the beginning of the program, you were talking about anxiety being caused by, you know, these kids being bombarded with, you know, so much pressure from, you know, social media and academic pressure. And when you talk about removing your kids and doing mindfulness, it's really like calming their inner world. And I and I think mm -hmm. that for kids to learn that there's another way to live, there's another feeling other than flight, you know, I think that's, that's, you know, really amazingly helpful. And I would encourage parents to do that because like you said, even 10 minutes a day can be very helpful for kids and, and very preventative. My guest is Erica Komisar. Her book is fabulous. Chicken Little, the Sky Isn't Falling. Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. And I love the title because so many parents feel like this is it. The world is coming to an end. Everything's falling apart. And I'm a very hopeful person. I'm like, no, it isn't. You know, you have, you do, as you said, have a second chance with your um, adolescents. So you're fabulous. Thanks for coming, Erica. And I really strongly encourage people to go and check out your books. You just make so much sense, but you put the psychological aspect in there as well. And that really, really helps people understand. So thanks for doing the work that you're doing. Thank you, Meg. Always thank you for having me on. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Erica Komazar. You need to check out her latest and greatest best book, Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling. Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. Wow, do we need that. Now on to my points to ponder. One, be there emotionally and physically for your child. During the first three years of your child's life, he's trying to figure out whether or not he can depend on you. This is critical to his stability, ability to trust, and be mentally healthy. Parents often believe that if you leave your child for long periods of time during the day, that they'll be just fine. Some are and many aren't. Young children need to know that when things hurt, there's one source of comfort they can always run to, 
over and over again. One parent needs to be that person. Here's the catch. That parent must be available for the child on a frequent and regular basis. If he's moved from one environment, home, to another place, daycare, dad's house, mom's house, he'll be confused about who will comfort him and if they will. Two, your child has an inner world and an outer world. Even young children know the difference between what they feel, think, and know. This is their inner world. The outer world is what happens around them, what they eat, the shows they watch, who their friends are, where they go. As a parent, it's very important to pay attention to securing your child's inner world. And this is done by focusing less on what you'll give your child, what opportunities you make sure he has, and focus more on establishing a healthy relationship with him through time spent together. Three, don't assume your kids are, quote, always fine. Parents believe their kids are more resilient than they are. When kids go through a difficult time, we hear people say, oh, they'll be fine. They're resilient. They'll bounce back. Well, where does this come from? If anything, kids are more sensitive to change, instability, and hurt. We must always be willing to see that that hurt and deal with it rather than believe what we want to about our kids, thinking that they're always fine because they don't show their pain hurts them more than it helps them. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Erica Komazar as much as I did. She's always filled with so many insights about raising healthy kids. You need to check out our latest book, Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. We need that book right now more than ever. Teachers, parents, coaches, grandparents, anybody who loves adolescent needs to read this book. Now let's review my points to ponder. One, be there emotionally and physically for your child. Two, your child has an inner world and an outer world. Three, don't assume your kids are always fine. I want to thank my guest, Erica Komazar, for joining me on the show today. You can follow her at Erica Komazar with a K dot com. Once again, that's Erica K-O-M-I-S-A-R dot com. You can also follow Erica on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for Erica Komazar in your internet browser. And remember, check out meekerparenting.com and sign up for my private community and watch for brand new courses that are coming out right around the corner. So until next time, parents, always remember that great kids are raised, not born. <laughs>